Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards. You name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. Episode 33 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Happy March, everyone. That's right. It's March 1st, and wow, I can't believe that. We have a terrific episode today. On today's show, I'm joined by Eli Finkel, the author of the best-selling book, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. The Economist has identified him as one of the leading lights in the realm of relationship psychology. And we have him with us on today's episode as our featured guest on the Shine On Podcast. We're going to talk with Eli about his book, The Evolution of Marriage and Divorce, and his eye-opening research and what it suggests about the institution of marriage and relationships today. We'll also talk with Eli about the test that so many relationships have been under the past two years, and have we ever seen anything like it? Speaking of leading lights, producer Dave is with us. (laughs) He is one of the leading lights here on the Shine On podcast, making it happen behind the scenes. Producer Dave, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for that generous introduction. Great show today. And Dave, speaking of wonderful, March 1st. I have had this day, March 1st, circled on my calendar since November 21. November, the month the sun started to set earlier, the days started to get colder, and it was getting dark at about 4.30 in the afternoon. Now, you may be thinking, what could it possibly be about the month of March that I absolutely love. Look, March is one of my favorite months in the year. No, it's not my birthday, and it's not producer Dave's birthday. <laughs> no. But it's spring, daylight savings. We turn the clocks ahead, the start of longer days. March Madness, spring training, if Major League Baseball could ever figure it out. And today, we start the month off in special, Shine On Podcast style, my interview with Eli Finkel, the author of the book, The All or Nothing Marriage, and social psychology professor at Northwestern University is coming up. This is an interview you don't want to miss. Coming up next is the docket. Evan, I've got the docket fired up. First one in March. Are you ready, sir? Dave, let's do it. Let's rock and roll. And now, let's see what's on the docket. Evan, the first item on the docket comes to us from page six of the New York Post. Item one has to do with the crooner, Sam Hunt. His pregnant wife files for divorce, citing adultery. Sam Hunt's wife, Hannah Lee Fowler, filed for divorce in Tennessee recently after nearly five years of marriage. She alleged that the singer Hunt is guilty of inappropriate marital conduct and guilty of adultery. Tell us what you took away from this one. Dave, anytime we talk country music on the Shine Up podcast, we do it. Nobody <laughs> loves a good country music song like you, producer Dave. Look, in reality, no less than two hours after this story broke, two people emailed me. The first one said, how do I get three types of alimony? As the article references that Hunt's wife is seeking traditional, rehabilitative, and alimony in the future. The second person reached out and said, why does she get to file on adultery grounds? 
I would have loved, absolutely loved to air out all of my husband's affairs and sexual exploits for everyone in the absolute world to see. I also reminded both that their divorces are in New York and not Tennessee. And oh, by the way, their pending divorces are just a little bit different from Sam Hunt's. I could officially thank Sam Hunt and this divorce, along with the state of Tennessee, for making divorcing spouses around the U.S., wonder how quickly they can transfer their divorce proceedings to Tennessee, a state that apparently allows you to request three different types of alimony and tell the world your spouse has had an affair. Mm. So is that a no-fault thing? I know in Massachusetts we call it no-fault divorce. Is, is that reference to this kind of situation? It is in New York, where I practice, is a no-fault state. You seek divorce on the grounds of irretrievable breakdown of the marriage, Right. And so, yeah, it, it, I think it's a, a myth in states like ours that people think, oh, he cheated or she cheated. I'm going to murder my ex-spouse in, in the divorce, but not so much. doesn't happen. And Dave, we talked about it before. Look, yeah. the judge isn't going to want to hear it. The judge isn't going to want to care about the extramarital affairs, the extramarital relationships that your spouse had. That's not the judge's focus. That's not the judge's role. The judge wants to expedite the the divorce and moving forward. Very good. The next item comes to us from CNBC.com. Item two. Headline reads, 54% of people believe a partner with debt is a reason to consider divorce. Here are other ways debt may affect your marriage. And the article goes through to detail some of those reasons. This is uh, right in your world, Evan. So what did you think? Dave, there's a quote that I love and I'm going to read it. Debt can cause conflict in a marriage, but it's all about communication. That quote is from Dr. Regine Meradian, who's referenced in the article. She nailed it. She is absolutely 100% right. To quote prior Shine on podcast guest, Dr. Phil Levy, it's all about communication. What reality? Here it is from inside a divorce attorney's office. No one ever comes into my office and says, my marriage is great. And oh, by the way, I want a divorce. Never happens. The reason people want a divorce, look, they vary. But I always get asked, what do you see the most? What's the most common reason? What do you hear from your clients? And if I had a dollar each and every time I was asked this question, I could probably retire, host a podcast from a vineyard out in Napa, California, or a beach somewhere. In all seriousness, you would have to drag me out of practicing law. I absolutely love what I do. But look, the truth is when people call me or email me or reach out and they say what happened, in their marriages or relationships, it's usually the culmination, the affair, or some something else that happened. But it's never just that. It rarely is. It's the underlying issues, the underlying blocks. The foundation was faulty and cracked, and so the house of marriage crumbled and could not withstand an argument or a disagreement or a bump or two or three in the road. And then the affair. And look, people want different things. There might be poor communication. The list goes on and on. And one of those underlying issues, time and time again, is money and debt and not knowing about the debt, not talking about the debt and the financial secrecy about the debt and the financial obstacles that have now been created because there was no communication about the debt. Debt and money problems, without a doubt, Producer Dave is one of the biggest underlying foundational pieces that if not discussed, if not fixed, 
it will inevitably lead to a bigger and deeper divide. Great thoughts and great advice. The third item on the docket today comes to us from the Middle East and ynetnews.com. Item three. Ynet News reports the following. Breaking the chains, Israel's divorce problem. Due to the nature of divorce in Israel, many women are left trapped in marriages they no longer want to be in, reads the article. Now some lawmakers float reform, but not without blowback. blowback. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because I've seen many uh, story, depiction, some in fiction, some in nonfiction, of women who are just that because of the strictures of their religion have a very difficult time escaping their marriage. Your thoughts on this piece? Dave, you're 100% right. I see this in my practice, and it's a really important article. The article focuses on how hard it can be to get divorced in Israel and to obtain a get. The article goes on to talk about how because of the laws, many women find themselves stuck and trapped in marriages, relationships, without a clear and easy path forward to get out of the relationship, to get divorced. And because of this, they find themselves stuck in abusive marriages. In New York, I often deal with a spouse seeking a get, and one spouse uses this as leverage or holds the get hostage, often holding up the divorce process, which usually causes an absolute uproar. And again, it forces women to stay in controlling marriages, something that is beyond their control unless they seek court and judicial intervention. Yes, this behavior is frowned upon by the courts and the judges in New York. And yes, a judge can order compliance with obtaining a get. But by the time it often gets in front of a judge, the controlling behavior, the abusive behavior has already taken place. And the article goes on to talk about the potential legislative reform and a change to a law from the 1950s in Israel, which states that marriages and divorces of Jews shall be performed in Israel according with Jewish religious law. We will absolutely follow what happens on this issue and any legislative reforms going forward. Does I take it a case proceeds differently in the United States. You're in New York. There's a big Hasidic Jewish community that's the most pious of, of Jews. And they may believe in the notion of the get and everything. But can that be used in American courts the same way as Israel in Israeli courts? Dave, great question. I love that. Yes, it can. People can use the divorce process to hold up. Giving one party a get, I see it. A handful of times. We're up to the part in the show where Evan gives his thoughts on the issues of the day. This one involves a celebrity divorce as we go to the Shine On Spotlight. The Shine On Spotlight. Producer Dave, how can I not talk about Kim and Kanye? And we're going to shine a spotlight on what's happening with them in the media and really what's transpiring between their divorce. Before I even finish this shine on spotlight, I'm sure there's going to be something new on this never-ending saga between Kanye and Kim. But wow, this has turned into an absolute spectacle and a scary one. The shine on spotlight is on a great article by Arwa Madawi and an incredibly important article that she writes. This is a must-read, and the article gets into much more than Kanye and Kim, and it's an article from The Guardian. The article goes on to talk about the behavior that you're seeing play out on social media and throughout various media platforms, the stock stalking and the public comments by Kanye. Kim and Kanye's divorce has been the complete opposite of a quiet divorce proceeding. And yes, 
they're celebrities. And yes, their divorce has been litigated throughout the media for several years. But things have been amplified recently to an entirely different level. The article I mentioned goes on to reference Kanye's recent behavior and his continued obsession and pursuit of Kim and the claims and allegations he has made towards her and Pete Davidson. But go back and listen to a prior episode of the Shine On podcast I did with Dr. Cheat Raghavan, where we talk about behavior similar to what Kanye is doing. And we have a great discussion on love bombing, stalking, coercive control. And this is behavior that we're seeing play out on the celebrity stage throughout the media. The history and evolution of marriage, online dating, COVID relationships. Our featured guest today on the Shine On podcast is Eli Finkel, who has covered it all in his years as a social psychologist and professor at Northwestern University. With over 150 scientific papers published on relationship dynamics, Eli is an expert when it comes to all things marriage and love. Eli is the author of the book, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work, Professor Finkel, welcome to the Shine On podcast. It's absolutely fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with the pandemic. As we approach the two-year anniversary of the pandemic, and what a time this has been. We have lived through absolutely extraordinary times, health concerns, marriages, relationships, loss, transition, parenting, and educational challenges, and the list goes on. Many people would say that the past two years has been a test on marriages and relationships, a test like we've never seen before. What have you seen? What are your thoughts on the pandemic and how that's impacted marriages and relationships? Well, the data are still coming in, so it's early to know what the long-term consequences are going to be. But I agree with the sentiment that that this is a um, a unique time in history, that we're learning things about how relationships work, and for the individuals among us, how our own relationship is functioning. And for some of us, it's a blessing that we have had more time with our spouse, at least at first it was anyway. I think it's at this point dragged on for everybody. Um, for a great number of us, it's been a source of not only death and sickness, um, but financial difficulty, social isolation has been a very challenging time for large, large numbers of us. And Eli, you talked about the stressors, and you recently wrote an article, How to Preserve and Even Strengthen Your Relationship During Quarantine, which was terrific. As we look at the past two years and the stresses that all of us have felt one way or another, how do couples, how have people navigated this time over the past two years, and what do you expect going forward once we get on the other side and behavior normalizes? Well, one thing that I find fascinating um, about stress, but in general, about, about the, the way that the outside world impinges on our relationships is that there are things that on average are challenging, things that are on average good. Um, stress is on average, no one will be surprised to know, difficult for relationships. On average, if you're wondering how to pay the bills, uh, things are harder in your relationship than if that's not, an, that's not an issue. If your child is going through difficulties at work, you're much, uh, difficulties at school rather, you're much more likely to have fights with your spouse than if your child isn't having those difficulties. But for me, the key lesson that we learn from studying relationships is that the world makes things harder or easier, but the, the, the dominant force in determining how the relationship is going to go is how we manage things. Uh, there can be 
great things that happen um, that tear a relationship apart, right? We've all heard these stories about people winning the lottery and then all their relationships fall apart. Winning the lottery is objectively a good thing. Um, people dealing with a, an affair and on the other side of the affair, they're closer than ever. And so the story really is not primarily what are the circumstances we're confronting, but how are we going to manage them together? Uh, and a large part of that is, what is the story that we're telling ourselves? What is the story that we're telling each other about what we're confronting, what we're facing, why one of us had an affair, um, why we're struggling with the difficult situation with our child? Can we work to a story about that that tells us about the strength of the relationship, the ability of the two of us to work together and soldier forth. If we're able to do that, then even if we're confronting difficult circumstances, we should end up stronger than we were before. Eli, I had a client say to me the other day, Evan, I haven't spent this much time with my partner since our honeymoon. And I think for a lot of people, people are feeling that. Like you said, to start in the pandemic, it was nice. People were spending time together. But again, as we approach the two-year anniversary, there have not been that many outlets for people, especially early on, to really release the stress that, that you're talking about. And as you talk about the why and telling the story, I would think so much of that is being able to communicate. How important is communication, open, transparent communication in a relationship and really going towards having that optimal, optimal marriage? Well, communication is is crucial, and um, and I agree with you most of the time uh, on the idea that that communication should be open and transparent, but not a hundred percent of the time. I mean, I, I think there's probably a case to be made that highly effective communicators know when to keep their mouth shut. Um, I remember the uh, the notorious RGB had an observation that I, that I put in my book because I liked it so much, and it was advice that she had gotten from her mother in law. And it was something to the effect of, you know, one of the most important things in a successful marriage is to be a little bit deaf. Now, it's hard to reconcile that with the idea that you that you always want to pursue maximally transparent and open communication. I'd say, yes, it's important to be transparent about the big stuff. But I think there's also, uh, you know, the 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 psycho therapeutic uh, norms that follow our relationships these days, it's, you know, don't exist in an absolute platonic ideal of what all marriages should be and always have to be. So yes, I think good communication is a good thing. I don't think that means infinite communication for every stressor, every annoying thing that your partner does. There's a whole lot of value in, you know, letting things roll off your back. Julie, let's, let's talk about that. And I want to lead into your book, which is absolutely fantastic. The all or nothing marriage you found in your book that the best marriages today, they're better than the best marriages of earlier generations. Tell us about this, the history and really the evolution of marriage and your research that went into the book. Yeah, I mean, this was the big surprise uh, from writing the book. I mean, everyone who sets out to write a book uh, knows what he, she, they uh, plan to write. Um, I planned to write a book that was uh, a pretty pessimistic book that, that said, we're asking more and more of this one relationship than we ever have in the past. And in doing that, we're basically making, making it buckle under the strain. Um, it used to be that there was like a whole village of people. We looked to friends and, you know, nobody stood there saying that I want to marry you because you're my best friend and you make me the ideal person. And like, you know, the things that we say in our wedding vows these days would have struck people 50 years ago, 200 years ago is preposterous. And so I was concerned about it, that that this is the, the story. But what ended up happening is, is I, 
I realized it was kind of a strange experience because as I delved outside of my home uh, research uh, discipline of you know psychology into the other areas, things like sociology and economics and history, I learned two things. The first is everybody already knows what I was going to say. Everybody already knows that we're asking too much. And the second thing I learned is that that conclusion is wrong. So everybody already knows it and it's false. And the reason why it's false is because it's true that we're asking more in some important ways of our marriages, but we're actually asking a lot less in other ways. And in particular, it's hard for those of us today to figure out or to get ourselves into the headspace of what life was like, not just in the 1950s, but say like 200 years ago before industrialization, marriage was literally about things like food, clothing, and shelter. You know, you think you would say to yourself in that era, like Dave is a good guy, but like, I don't really feel the pitter-patter when we kiss, so I'm not going to marry him. Marriage was far too fundamental about literal survival for those sorts of things to be a concern. Today, marriage really isn't about fundamental basic survival, and so then we get to focus on more psychological and emotional sorts of things. Eli, as you look at the state of marriage and really the institution of marriage today and the expectation, is there an expectation that is unfair when people think about marriage, the, the idea that until death do us part, are we now at the place where how we define a successful marriage is not what it was 40, 50, 60 years ago? It's a great question. Do I think it's unfair, uh, the, the tell death do us part part? And, and by the way, we should put in here, tell death do us part, and we're going to be monogamous the whole time. Um, no, I don't think it's unfair. But I think it is a big ask in ways that we are not sufficiently sensitive to. And, and here I, I do want to throw monogamy on top of your tell death to us, do us part element, because I think those two things exist in conjunction, right? Like we don't, we don't say this about our friends. You know, we, do I think it's unrealistic to say I'll have a friend for the rest of my life? That's one question if it means I can't have any other friends. It's another question if it's like one friend among many. And, and so that's really, it's the exclusive nature of marriage that I think is complicated. Even so, I don't think that that's unrealistic or unfair. What, what I find disconcerting is that many of us make these lifelong vows without fully appreciating exactly what we're asking. And because we aren't fully appreciating exactly what we're asking, we're not sufficiently sensitive to what it's going to take to make this thing deliver for the next 60 years. Uh, and here again, I, I want to come back to monogamy, not because I, I think most people should be non-monogamous. I, I don't think that. I think probably the majority of us are, are better off having a, a strictly romantically and sexually monogamous marriage. But, uh, but I am certain that that's not 100% of people. And I'm also certain that when people make these vows, they haven't really thought about, well, what will it take? Um, is it okay for me to deprive my partner of a lot of sex for the next 60 years, that she just won't have the sex life that she wants? Is that okay with me? If that's not okay with me, uh, does that mean that I'm going to be having a lot of sex that I don't want? Um, is that reasonable? Is, are these the sorts of things I'm willing to do? What are my responsibilities to stay physically fit for the long run if, my, if I'm going to insist that my partner not be with anybody else? Uh, am I going to uh, you know, be highly experimental uh, in terms of, of sexual variety? Right? Are these things that, that we are actively thinking about when we say, you know, tell death do us part? I think we're not. Uh, and I bring up the, the sexual domain, but it's really just one domain among many, which is we have a vision for what the norms are, what marriage is. And we don't realize that that vision is highly culturally and historically relative, right? It's not like it came down 
to Moses on Mount Sinai that it has to have exactly the following structure and the exact following expectations. In fact, the Bible's filled with, you know, polygamy, for example. So all of this is to say that, that I think it is realistic that people uh, pursue the, the vision that we have today in the West, especially in America, that is a highly emotionally fulfilling, lifelong monogamous relationship with uh, somebody who will essentially function as our best friend. I think, God bless, if you want to do that, that's awesome. And it's great to live in an era where that's available. But to think you can do it on the cheap to think you can do it without really recognizing what you're asking and what the implications of those asks are, that's the thing that concerns me. And Eli, there's so much in, you, in your answer that I want to unpack. And I think when you talk about the appreciation and when you talk about the vision, you're a professor, you work with and teach students in their 20s. Are you seeing the millennial shift and the millennial attitude towards marriage? Are you seeing that change in terms of the vision or the expectation? You mentioned, you know, monogamy, you mentioned so many wonderful things in your answer. Are you seeing that shift in the younger generation? Yes. I don't know that I would single out any any particular generation, but I'm happy to talk about longer term trends. Again, lest you think this is a book about non-monogamy, it's not, but I'll give one, one other example in that case. We know that um, one of the most interesting studies is a, is a nationally representative survey from 2016 that asked people, in your ideal relationship, not what do you think is realistic, but in your ideal relationship, um, to what degree is it monogamous or non-monogamous? Again, ideal relationship, right? And so people could answer zero, meaning it's like completely monogamous in all ways, or six being it's completely non-monogamous in all ways. And you can divide the data such that you can you know, basically say to what degree are people saying zero, that is completely monogamous in all ways, versus something other than zero, meaning non-monogamous in at least some ways. And it's interesting to track that over the last say four or five generations, the, the generations that are alive, and you're getting this clear linear trend that younger generations are less devoted to the idea that the ideal relationship is non-monogamous. There are other broad trends. I'm, I'm sure you're certainly aware of them. So, so one thing that, that kind of blows my mind is that in 1960, the median age of marriage, that is the, the 50th percentile age of marriage for a man was 22 and for a woman was 20. And I don't even know what to say. Like, I, like that just strikes me as absolutely staggering. Uh, today, it's something closer to 30 and 29. And again, that's the median. It's older among the college educated. Um, and it's wild even to think about those sorts of changes. That, that is, it used to be that marriage was something that we did just as we were starting adulthood. And the two of us were just going to figure out the rest of it together. Increasingly today, we think of, of marriage as sort of the capstone of the transition to adulthood. That is, we want to make sure that we finished our education. Ideally, we've paid off some of our uh, education debt. We've gotten a career started. We feel pretty settled. And only then does it seem like it's time to start getting married. So the generational trends are large, they're significant, um, and they do involve, uh, you know, they're related to what we think the purpose and function of marriage really is. And Eli, it's absolutely fascinating because what I'm seeing is I'm seeing more and more people, like you mentioned, get married a bit later in life. I'm seeing the topic of prenuptial agreements, money, things that used to be absolutely taboo, divorce, prenups, now becoming almost the norm. And what I'm also seeing is couples, and you've heard the term gray divorce, couples in their 60s and 70s, after raising two, three, four children who are out of college, 
you know, not living at home anymore. I'm seeing couples in their 60s, 70s. I have probably seven couples that I'm working with right now who are looking for different things at a later point in life. And whether it's the life expectancy has increased and changed. When you look at both the millennial generation and then what I mentioned, the gray divorce, couples who are older, who, you know, a generation ago, the idea that you would get divorced or separate in your 60s and 70s would be something that would be unheard of. When you look at the older generation, what do you attribute that to? So there's a couple things in there. You mentioned, uh, I think, prenups and the great divorce, and I, I actually have a couple comments on both. Uh, the the prenup thing is interesting. So, so first, in fairness, you probably have a a, a non entirely representative sample of people in in your world. So I, I don't know that it is hugely common. I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but I don't think it is hugely common. And I have ambivalence about um, prenups. I, I think there's a lot of upsides because delusions about the likelihood that like, there's no way we'll get divorced. You know, it's 40, 50% of marriages are end in divorce, but certainly not ours. Like I, that, that lack of realistic understanding, I think actually makes people vulnerable to divorce because then they, they're likely to interpret solvable problems as evidence for, you know, severe brokenness. Um, so again, I, I'm sensitive to why prenups are a good idea. Um, and to pretend that marriage isn't partially about economics is is goofy. Uh, on the other hand, um, once you're starting to focus on like exchange, right? Marriage as exchange, marriage is like what I'm getting and what you're getting. That That is a a recipe for some amount of difficulty. We know it because in part you ask people, you know, say a heterosexual couple, you say, well, how much of the housework do you do? And then you ask, ask the wife, you know, how much of the housework do you do? And, you know, on average, they agree that she does a little more than he does. But the, but the real interesting effect is that it totals more than 100%, right? Like the two of them combined have done more than 100% of the housework. And so there is a general tendency for us to be self-serving, either because we don't notice some of the things our partner did, but we notice all the things that we did, or because we're motivated to distort the information and self-serving ways. So once you start getting into this keeping track headspace, we might call it an exchange rather than a communal mindset, there, there is some risk associated with that. And, and each couple, I think, needs to deal with the trade-offs involved in like being careful and making sure that you're protected, even if it means that you're sort of keeping track of the details and the money and who's contributing what versus we're going to take a flying leap. We're not going to keep track of all that stuff. Of course, there's a chance that that I will be exploited or abused, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. Um, on average, uh, the the second option yields the best marriages, but also places people at the highest risk. The, the great divorce is an interesting phenomenon, and and you're right that that there has been some surge in the uh, likelihood of people getting divorced after their kids are up and out. And to some degree, this is surprising. It's like, well, you've like done, you've done the hard parts. Like now, you, you know, sit in your rocking chair and, and, you know, <laughs> get your Arnold Palmer and enjoy. There's a few things going on here. One is um, the baby boomer generation um, say whatever you want about the generation. There's many good sides and many bad sides, but they have been heroic in the divorce arts um, relative to the generations before them and the generations after them. The baby boomers are really good at divorce. Um, and that's why a lot of conservative commentators have called them the me generation, right? Or, or these things are, are tied up together. So, so some part of it is we now have a generation of people who are, you know, graying that are baby boomers. And so that, that's a confound in terms of trying to think about this over the long term. But the, the but there are two other issues I want to mention about the great divorce. First of all, there wasn't an issue of the great divorce because people didn't live this long, right? Like it's, it's a new idea that people actually live 
um, you know, and have reasonable quality of life, not only into their 70s and 80s, but sometimes beyond that. And the second thing I want to say is we haven't really touched on this part of, of my book yet, but one of the key ideas I mentioned in my book is that increasingly over the last 50, 60 years, we've looked to marriage for something that, that Abraham Maslow would call self-actualization. We could call it self-expression. We could call it authenticity. The idea is that marriage is supposed to be a, a means through which we live a life that is aligned with who we really are deep down. And ideas that would have been like subject of mockery in 1950 are mainstream today. And so if it's true that what we're looking for from marriage is not only the sort of emotional connection and some of the economic stuff that people have long looked to for marriage, but also this sense of personal growth, this sense that, that I'm living an authentic life, that I'm really being the person I was meant to be, insofar as that's become an important part of what marriage actually is, then it isn't really shocking that you'd see people divorcing in their 60s and their 70s, because they're realistically going to say things like, look, Dave was a good father, and and he loves me, and I love him, but I feel stagnant in this relationship. There's not much passion here, and I'm not going to live that way for the next 30 years. And Eli, I think you hit it right on the head, and I think the idea of sitting in the rocking chair with an Arnold Palmer, as great as that sounds, that's not necessarily what someone may be looking for because someone may be living right. for 20, 30, 40 years beyond right. that. And people want different things. And you mentioned people have done the hard work. You've raised children, you've put them through college, you've parented two, three, four kids, whatever it may be. And then you see people's interests change at that specific yeah. age. And with respect to prenups, I think so much about it, you know, as, as you mentioned, is about communication, expectation, really having that discussion before you say I do before we get married. Your point about you've seen the kids off to college, that's pretty interesting. And I'd love to ask your audience to think about in some ways how crazy the decision to get married is, right? Like, like how many phases a, a, a long productive life has, right? There's like, so, so think about a, a relationship. You meet somebody in your late 20s and then you die at 90, in the U.S. today, for example. So you've got the early period, and if you're lucky enough to have been college educated and have a little bit of discretionary money, you're going out on dates, you might be having sex on the beach somewhere in Europe, right? Like there's this part, and, and, and that's a lot of what you're using to decide, do I want to make a life with this person? Now, how representative were those two, three years of what the next 60 years are going to be? Not at all. Right. The fact that we fell wildly in love with each other when we were partying with our friends and then we had like fun travel together and the sex has been amazing is really not that highly correlated with the things that are going to be crucial when you're, you know, raising a young family, which involves a whole lot of like filth and spit up and, and cleaning and and like imposing discipline on recalcitrant little people. It also involves a lot of love and affection, but different sorts of things than that sex on the beach thing. And then, you know, they get older and then there's the teenage stuff where you're dealing with also recalcitrant people, but they're not quite as little. And then there's like the empty nest thing. And it's like, well, what does that mean? And now we're going to retire. And it's like, well, I don't know, like, what are we doing next? And in some ways, it's kind of a miraculous thing that so many marriages do work. It's this for me, and, and again, I, I might sound cynical to some of your listeners, but my book is a pro-marriage book. It's basically, this is the decision to marry is a heroic leap of faith, a heroic leap into the unknown. But, but look, if we're being honest with ourselves as we sit here, are we that shocked that the person who was such a good fit 
when you were trying to you know raise a family and make a meaningful home and and do all those sorts of things isn't really necessarily the right fit for now you're you're both retired and have a whole lot more free time and are increasingly frail i don't know like i'm not totally shocked that that wouldn't be the right i'm sorry i'm not totally shocked that that wouldn't be the same person Eli, it's absolutely brilliant that I love that question, but yet marriage is one of those things that people do time and time again. And you're right. Nobody thinks about what marriage is going to look like 15, 20, 30 years down the, down the road. So whether it's a class, whether it's a boot camp, I mean, if you look at marriage and how we go about it, everyone or not everyone, most people look at marriage, even today, I would think and say, I want to get married for the most part yeah. and yeah. they do it. And they yeah. do it. And they think about all the things that you talk about, the honeymoon, the traveling, the sex on the beach, the fun times, life when you're single or life when you're a couple without children. Nobody thinks of necessarily what it's going to look like. So when you have a problem or not, a, when you have a situation that you look at, what's the fix? What's the cure? Is, is it education? Is it, I mean, how do, is it changing how we define or look at marriage? How do you have someone see a vision that goes beyond just the two years, really what's in front of them. So I do have, let me say, I have two thoughts on this. I don't feel like I have the answer. And, and honestly, I don't feel like the state of the, the research evidence thus far has a convincing answer to, you know, what is it that people can do to protect themselves against this? Because one of the issues, of course, is we don't know how we ourselves are going to deal with postpartum depression that might come in five years, with a cancer diagnosis that might come in 13 years, with, with an economic windfall that came out of nowhere, with a, somebody at work who flirts with us relentlessly in 19 years. Like, to some degree, the future is pretty hard to know. Um, so that is all to say that, that nobody really, at least yet, has the answer. And it's plausible to me that nobody in principle can ever have the answer because the world is too complicated. So I think in fairness, I mean, you and I have talked and, and you know, both of us have said, like, people aren't really thinking about this or that. In, in fairness to them, I think what we mean is they're not thinking well about these things. Like, I think when people get married, they think they've thought about what their partner is going to be like as a as a parent. But it's more based on an intuition that there's like love here. Like there's love and affection here. And, and you're exactly right. Like, how can you kind of stress test those assumptions? Well, here's where I think most people really aren't thinking well about that. They have an intuition that I can tell he's just a loving man and th therefore he's going to be a good father. And, you know, the fact is we're a little different when we're in the throes of love than when we're not in those like early moments of passion. Like I may really authentically be more giving and kind during those moments, because I want to be than I have ever been before and ever will be in the future. And that's part of what it is to be hopelessly in love with someone. So one of the ideas that, that I play with in the book is, is that marriage is, is almost like mountain climbing. And I talk about this within the context of, of Maslow's, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy, where there's, there's you know, self-actualization, the sort of more ambitious psychological goals are near the top. And I make the case that, that um, one thing that's exciting about the fact that we live in the 21st century in America and that we get to try to marry somebody who is 
compatible with us in a deeper way than people were even trying for in 1950 or 1800, and that that's a real privilege. And those of us who are able to stick the landing, again, I think it is fewer than half, but a healthy minority that are able to stick the landing with that level of ambition, those are indeed the best marriages that the world has ever known. Um, the downside is, of course, as we're looking to the summit, as we're looking to these profound levels of, of connection with our spouse, a lot of us are disappointed with a marriage that would have been totally fine um, for our you know, grandparents, let's say. But with regard to your question of like, how can we sort of shock proof the marriage as best as possible, given, you know, given the state of the evidence thus far, the metaphor of mountain climbing, I, I think is, is pretty useful. And, and here's the way I develop it, especially in the, in the, toward the end of, of my book is, is that mountain climbing is a big, arduous, risky task. It requires a lot of preparation, a lot of gear. And if the weather's right, and the motivation is there, you can go toward the summit. And what a view, like what an amazing experience up there at the top. But no marriage climbs to the summit and spends 60 years there. And so for me, with regard to your question of like, how can we do our best to shock proof the marriage to, to have people think better? I like to think of marriage as, as a, the best marriages, as, as something of a process of recognizing what our circumstances are, right? Two young kids at home, we're going to have to lay off the amount of um, expectation that we have for deep, intimate connection, for the you know amount of times we'll go on exciting dates and vacations, just the two of us, the amount of sex that we'll have. Like That's not the time. It's unseasonal to expect all the things in all the circumstances. And so what do you do? You go back to base camp. You go back to base camp. You hang out there. You sort of appreciate what's good about the marriage while laying off some of those more ambitious expectations about level of connection, but not feel like you've given up, not feel like, well, I guess this marriage just isn't going to be able to deliver the sort of connection we wanted. It's to say, we'll get there again. We've got to bide our time. And while we're biding our time, we're going to play to our strengths. I talk concretely in the book about how I think people can do this. How can you live at base camp most effectively? How can you recognize when it's time to attempt another summit attempt? But for me, it's, it's, it's developing the skills it's developing the understanding, and those are sorts of the – that's like the gear that you need and the training that you need. That's part of it, and this is one of the reasons why I like that people are marrying a little later. They have a better sense of who they are. They have better interpersonal skills at 30 on average than they do at 20, and then it's it's like monitoring where we are in life and what our circumstances are and how much those circumstances afford the ability to connect deeply, to invest deeply in the relationship, to have it be, uh, you know, a, a summit style experience. And then recognize, oh boy, like we've got gale force winds blowing in. Let's spend some time at, at base camp. Eli, I absolutely love that answer. And it reminds me, so there was a quote from Esther Perel about your book saying expectations or resentments waiting to happen. How can couples better express their expectation without it leading to resentment and negative feelings? Well, you know, what's fun about that is the quote that you have from Esther Perel. Um, some of your listeners will be familiar with her. She's one of the greatest thinkers of our current era in terms of how relationships work. She's a sex therapist, but also a huge TED speaker and all that stuff. Um, and she said, um, expectations are resentments 
waiting to happen. Um, and then John Gottman, probably the other sort of like major, sure. well, he's a researcher, um, that, that there was another tweet from the Gottman Institute that that said essentially the opposite, said like that that um, those of us who don't ask from our marriage don't get much from the marriage. And what was wild about writing the book is that those two tweets arrived in my uh, in my timeline, is that what you call it on Twitter, um, during my same lunch break on the same day, right? And so I looked at that and I said, well, what are people supposed to do with this advice, right? These are two of the greatest thinkers about relationships that exist in our time. And one of them is saying expectations are resentments waiting to happen. And the other is saying, if you don't ask a lot of your marriage, you're not going to get much. And I think the answer is they're both right. And that's kind of what my book was. My, my book was the, the, it, at first, remember, I thought I was going to write a book that was about expectations being bad, right? That is, if you're asking way too much, you're just going to end up disappointed. Well, look, that's true, assuming that no that expectations have no impact on what experiences you have. So let's think about this. Your level of happiness with the, the things that you're getting out of life, the things that the experiences that you're having with marriage, if your expectations are lower, you'll be happier with whatever you're getting than if your expectations are higher. That is true. And if that's the only function expectations served, then my initial hypothesis, I think, would have been right. That is that you want to have lower expectations of your marriage. What I think I didn't fully recognize at first is that expectations, that is, I really want this marriage to be a, a primary source of, emo of emotional connection in my life, right? I want this person to be my best friend. Those also, those sorts of expectations also have motivating components, motivating power. And so bringing high expectations does two things. It makes us invest in the relationship to try to get the relationship to meet the expectations. That's the good side. The bad side is once we have a certain type of experience in the relationship, we then evaluate it relative to higher or lower expectations. And when our expectations are higher, we end up more disappointed. Now, I know this is a more complicated story than most people who are writing books about relationships <laughs> are telling, but I believe it to have the, the, I suppose, upside of being true. That is that these expectations placed within reach, like I said before, a level of connection that's unavailable when people aren't even trying, but also put us at risk of feeling disappointment in a marriage that would have been fine if we weren't even trying. And so for me, that's where you really get to the resolution of the mountaineering process. The mountaineering metaphor is calibrating expectations to your circumstances. And that allows you to reap the benefits of high expectations. That is when you, when you have expectations for something, you're more likely to try and make the effort. And that's a good thing, but also recognizing the marriage right now is just not going to be able to deliver for a while because of all the other chaos surrounding us. I'm going to lower my expectations for now so that I don't set myself up for, for disappointment. And if we can really calibrate these things, I'm not saying it's easy, but if we can calibrate this mountaineering thing to recognize when the opportunities are there, we're going to shoot for the summit. And when they're, and then, and when they're not there, we're going to lower the expectations at least for a while so that we don't end up feeling frustration and disappointment. And, and so we calibrate those things over time. Eli, do you think there is a societal shift in terms of the work that people are willing to put into their relationships and marriages today, as opposed to the 1950s, 1960s, as divorce is less of a taboo thing is climbing up the mountain. Obviously that's work and you describe the effort and everything that goes into it. Are people today willing to put in the work to the same level, to the same degree that you describe as opposed to several years ago? I have two sort of apparently contradictory 
um, responses to this. Um, the first is, and, and I think this is a little bit antithetical to the way you framed the question, is that people didn't used to think of marriage as work. In, in fact, one of the books that the early books that I read when I was getting outside my home discipline to find out what everyone else has been saying about marriage over time is the, the book is called Making Marriage Work. Now, there's a there's a double meaning there, right? So one is, uh, how do you make a marriage go effectively, work in that sense? But the other is, how do you construe that this is a relationship that requires effort, right? So those are the two meanings of making marriage work. And this was largely a second half of the 20th century phenomenon. That is, you know, go back 100 years, nobody was talking about working on your marriage, right? This is a, again, the sort of therapeutic ethos that has entered the way we think about life in general, but also um, the way we think about our relationships. So in that sense, people are willing to work on marriage a whole lot more than they were. I mean, there, there wasn't even like a, a, a couples therapy industrial complex um, in, you know, in the 1950s. This is really a, a second half of the 20th century phenomenon. Again, there were a little bit before that, but mostly this, is, this sort of arose after the 60s. But I think you're also correct. Um, and again, this is going to seem contradictory because on the one hand, I'm saying people are much more willing to work on their marriage today than they were in the past. That is true. But there's a, there's a sense in which you still have this problem of people being, you know, unwilling to work on their marriage today relative to in the past. And that's by a different way of, of thinking about what it means to work on the marriage. People are more willing to work on the marriage if they think that the, the marriage can grow, right? If they're not thinking of the problems that, that we're having as fundamental and intractable and unchangeable. And so if even if I'm in the therapeutic era where I feel like, well, marriages take work, and what I conclude when I get into the therapy room with you is, nope, we're just incompatible, well, then I'm no longer willing to do the work because we're only supposed to do the work insofar as we are fundamentally compatible. There is a different way of thinking about relationships, which is that these things are developed and cultivated, that there's no such thing as soulmates. And insofar as you hold those sorts of beliefs, then you're much more willing to work on the relationship and, and maybe even most importantly, view difficulties as opportunities for increasing closeness in the relationship rather than as evidence for the fundamental flaw in, in uh, the, the thing that the two of us have built. Eli, what an answer. And I want to thank you for coming on the Shine On podcast. Before we finish up, tell all the listeners where they could pick up a copy of the book and read and check out all your articles and everything that you have going on. Yeah, I'd be delighted. I, you know, I'm not sure if bookstores still exist, but I, I think the book is probably <laughs> available there. I, I hear there's a company called Amazon that I think sells it. Um, my website, elifinkel.com, you, you can, I don't, you know, find information on where to find it. Um, but the book is called The All or Nothing Marriage. And, and um, I think it's a really good option for people who like thinking seriously about how relationships work, and then thinking about what the implications are of that serious thinking for how we can make our own relationships better. Great. Eli, thank you very much for coming on the Shine On Podcast. Thank you. Episode 33. Wow. Was that great? What a truly amazing episode. And what a way to start the month off in March on the Shine On Podcast. Eli Finkel, he was great. What a tremendous spot. Thank you to all the listeners. Producer Dave, the leading light behind the <laughs> scenes. Thank you. My pleasure. Is that my new nickname? I hope so. I think it is. Okay. Producer Dave, the leading light. <laughs> and to all the listeners, you can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, Pod 617, and all major podcast platforms, including YouTube, where we are up and running. Leave a comment, leave a review, and follow. 
the podcast and follow me on social media for the latest content and head over to shineanddivorce.com. Send in your emails to evan at shineanddivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you.